one of the things I've realized about cults is that um, they're certainly not limited to religious cults. The ability to be in a cult is part of the human emotional, mental and emotional structure. We're, we're social beings, you know. There's a lot of forces that can be manipulated to pull on people's sense of social cohesion. But they make you part of the group, first of all. Everybody and welcome to episode 48 of Frankie Files podcast. A small caution for this episode for a brief discussion of drugs, acid in the 70s. The Morningland Papers. Here in episode 48, we'll be speaking to one of the very earliest members of Morningland Church. Colts coercion, and sexuality in society. These are the topics for the Frankie Files. I'm Frankie Tease, your host, and I'll continue to focus on my own family story as well as news and recovery info for those who've survived, especially the adult children of cults. New each Tuesday. See FrankieFilesPodcast.com for more. A man named Dan Sperato and his wife began the church in the 70s. Hers was Patricia Sperato, and his name was Dan Sperato. His nickname, Donato. Today, our guest is Lee O. He's a disciple who was a good friend to webmaster Al Stone, who created and ran the only opposition media online. To Morningland. That was x-morninglanders.com, which is still up posthumously. Lee was a good friend of Al. He's a good person and a friend to many. Lee was raised in Pennsylvania area, and we'll hear today how his good friend convinced him to see what Donato and Morningland was all about. I knew Lee. My mother, my sister, we all knew Lee because my sister and I were in the music department. Lee is a musician, a really good musician, and he was always in the music department at Morningland. So let's get this story started. Warning, it's about to get really weird. Here we go. First of all, thank you for being here on Frankie Files Podcast. We're so happy to have you. My, my pleasure. Lee is one of the early members, so that would be first generation of Morningland. 2600 East 7th Street in Long Beach, California, for those of you who don't know. And Lee uh, knew my family, was a disciple of Donato. You and I connected recently um, after you started hearing the podcast, which was so amazing. My mom and I were so glad to hear from you. Let's set the Wayback Machine, Lee. You can do that because this is, you know, the 70s was a whole nother time. Give our listeners an idea of how you very, very first encountered Morningland when you had a friend, a schoolmate, who went and then what happened? Yeah. Yeah. My girlfriend at the time and I, her name is, is Jeannie O'Keefe, um, she had a friend, Mary Moore, and uh, we were just all three friends in college. And we were, um, you know, this was back in the this was 68, 69. We were hippies. So we all kind of were in the same circle on the, the, the school that, that I went to back then. It was a small liberal arts school in Pennsylvania. Um, there weren't all that many hippies so we all kind of knew each other and we hung out and we talked about a lot of things and one of the things we we used to talk about was what we sort of at that time called the revolution meaning that we all kind of wanted to change the world and and help to change the world we we could see as as so many college students do we see the things that were that were wrong the things that were that were right you know this and that and mary and i in particular used to have these sort of heated discussions about what the best way to do it was. Hmm. And I always maintained that it was that the revolution, quotes, I'm making air quotes, was first and foremost a spiritual 
one. And by that, I didn't mean anything to do with religion or anything. I just meant that people's hearts and minds have to change. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the system will never change. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mary used to argue the opposite, that no, she would say you can't change people's hearts and minds without changing the political system, too. You know, we both had good points and blah, blah, blah. It was the thing that college students do. Discussed weighty issues. Fast forward um, about a year from that time. Um, I and Mary, mean, meanwhile, had had left to go on a trip to the West Coast. And uh, we started getting these letters back from her that she had met this man in Long Beach um, that she was mightily impressed with. And, and she started saying things that were not so many words, but started to make me realize I think she's come around to my side of this argument. She's she's talking about spiritual evolution, talking about how you have to change, you know, individuals have to change and the world needs to be uplifted and all that stuff. But it can only happen through um, individuals changing. Checked out Morning Land. It was just this little tiny storefront, and at the time it was just one, you know, one shop of a store, of a kind of a strip mall kind of thing. And uh, I was impressed. Everybody was. It was very nice, and you know, and like I said, the, the more the people I met, they were they were more and more seemingly ethereal, loving and kind and ebullient. I think is the right word. You know, very very outgoing and loving and friendly. And I just thought it was just great. And then, and everyone on the way up got more and more like that. So I got to Donato, and it was, the whole impression came crashing down like a little New York accent. How you doing? But, I, you know, I also thought, okay, so I didn't come all the way out here just to get put off by somebody's uh, demeanor. So basically, you know, I had a, a, a meeting with him. Uh, I don't know what you want to call it. It wasn't really a meeting or anything like that. It was just he knew I'd come out to, to, to check him out, so we had a meeting. And honestly, some fairly amazing things happened in that. I asked Lee, did Mary mention any drugs in Morning Lynn? And how did Mary get recruited and meet Donato in the very first place. He talks about this, and he teases the fact that he felt something on his first visit. Yeah, no, I didn't see anybody hmm. taking drugs. No one ever even talked about it. So I just assumed right. that it was something that he did with her because it's just in their early days. I think at that time, they didn't even have the storefront. He was just he was just working out of his apartment in Lovey. Um, and I don't even know how Mary... All I do know is that someone in her travels, because, you know, she was... What she told us later, and, and I never got that from her when we were students, but what she told us later in her letters back and forth, you know, in, let's say, 1973 and early 74, was just that she had come out here searching for... Something like, you know, a guru, particularly use that term, but, but she had stopped in some either meditation place or some ashram further up the coast, um, and someone in that search directed her to Donato. And I, I don't know who that person is. Back then, there were a lot of these little, you know, things springing up everywhere. So he went out west, too curious. And this is his meeting with Donato. You know, I was a child of the 60s, right? So when I was in college, you know, there was one year where we, we did acid pretty much every weekend or every other weekend. I'm very familiar with, with mind-altering drugs. I say it was not like, for any of your listeners who've ever done anything like mescaline or psilocybin or mushroom, you know, mushrooms, there's an essence of that experience, which which I, I would call just being purely in the now as complete conscious awareness with no thoughts running on, no emotions about this or that, no thinking about the past or the future. You're just purely present. That part of it was the same. What's, what's different is that when, you, when that happens because of a drug, there's also a lot of other things that go along with that. Like there'll be weird colors that morph off of things and, mm. you know, you move your hand and you tend to see trails and you know, there's a lot of other things. It was none of that. So it was, a, you know, like I said, I'm I'm quite familiar with with the feel of psychedelics, and there was there was nothing nothing like that about it. Because that's the first thing I thought of was could somebody put something in my coffee. 
I didn't have any coffee. I had nothing to drink. I mean, I will say this. When, when Mary, in one of her trips back, when she visited Jeannie and I and told us about, you know, her experiences, she did say that, you know, that, that she did do acid with Donato. She said he, he helped me. You know, he, he, she said, I took, I took one hit, he took a little tiny bit. And she sort of laughed at me and said, I doubt he really needed it at all, but he did. And, and that helped me. And I remember at the time, you know, like I said, being a child of the 60s, I thought, wow, I would love to do that with somebody who was a real guide. So in other words, you could, they could really take you through the levels that you go through and kind of be act as a guide. In those days, um, I, I took the whole experience very seriously. I didn't, it wasn't just, I mean, if I wanted to have a party, it would be beer. But acid was not a party. That was, that was serious stuff. And you took it to learn to learn and to grow and to understand. So, so that's the context that was in. This was the fall of 1974. So we're coming up on 50 years ago. The Frankie Files. As we were talking, you know, he was asking me about myself and what I did and what I was interested in. And I remember telling him I played music and he just, he said sort of in an offhand way when I told him I, I was interested in music and I played in a band. But he said, you know, if you go into a bar, there's a song for them on that jukebox. An interesting thing to say, but there was nothing. At, at the same time as this was going on, um, I'm looking at him and his face kept changing. I was having, and it was a strange experience. Like, like I remember, I've, I've talked about this before in other instances and that the, the analogy I've come up with is that it would be like if you've ever ridden on a train and you're looking out the window and you don't realize but all of a sudden another train comes by on the other track and if you try to catch the the glimpse, glimpses of the faces in the windows mm-hmm. that go by um, it was just like that it was moving that quickly but rather than going uh, right to left as that would be on a train track it was going up all these faces his face kept changing, and not not in a in a obvious way, changing into somebody completely different, but just it just started morphing in some way that I was going. I kept finding myself looking, going, "What?" And in the meantime, we're talking about just nothing, and all of a sudden, all of that movement stopped, and I was looking, and he looked directly at me. One of the first times, he was kind of because his eyes were a little bit. He would usually tend to glance around and glance away. You know, he wasn't a real straight towards you kind of guy. But all of a sudden, he looked directly at me and with a with a very direct, you know, gaze. And his eyes were, were a beautiful blue. And I just remember everything just completely stopped. I was in the, in the moment, completely in the now, absolutely still in my awareness, looking into, at, this, at these two eyes. And this, the vo- a voice in my head sort of said, that's divine. And I went to myself, holy <laughs> because, now I didn't say anything to him. That's what's really weird, too. I didn't say, you know what just happened? Um, wasn't any of that, but, but so the, the whole meeting was sort of like that, you know, then it, that went away, and I was like, sitting there just sort of amazed, like, wow. And then we would talk about something else, and then at one point, um, at one point I remember out there, and he glanced away and said, oh, here comes Morningstar. That was, that was Mary. You know, sure enough, she walked by. So I thought, okay, well, I don't know. But just a lot of those. And I, I remember leaving there thinking, wow, what the hell was that? But I couldn't deny, I guess, the, the experience, you know. Lee had encountered something, but it didn't stop after he left. I did have an experience that night um, after I had met him that day. It was probably sometime in the afternoon. Um, left for the day and you know my friend that I was at we went out to dinner and then we went back to the place where we were staying um, and about 8 o'clock or so I just started to fall asleep on the couch which was which was very unusual for me because you know I was a night owl still am pretty much never been never been falling asleep by 8 o'clock but mm-hmm. something was going on and I just went into this 6 hour experience that was um for you or for your listeners, the best way to understand it is to is to look up near death experience. It was 
virtually identical to that, with the exception of the fact that I wasn't near death, as far as I know. <laughs> so, so I went. I went. I had this experience where I basically left my body. Um, when I didn't go through a tunnel, but I was in what appeared to be in space, and I moved towards and was increasingly pulled towards this what I thought was just a star. Which then eventually, as it got bigger and bigger, I realized, no, this is a conscious being. And, you know, it's, this all is really difficult, impossible to put into words. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, yeah, I just, you know, this, this being was, was conscious and loving and intelligent beyond anything I could begin to describe. Uh, you know, subjectively, I felt like you might imagine, if you were imagining yourself hovering in front of the face of the sun, it was like that. I mean, it, by the time the motion towards it stopped, um, that's how big it was. It just filled every, every you know, the horizon, left, right, top, to bottom. And, and this entire message was downloaded, in a sense, into me that, that I don't remember to this day. Hmm. <laughs> what? I only remember one part of it, or a couple parts of it. The first part was trust yourself. Um, you know exactly how life should be. Just do it. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks or says or does. Just do it. That part I remember as clear as a bell. The rest of it was was immense amounts of information. Um, backing, in a way, backing that up. I mean, I've used the analogy before that it'd be like getting a book that's about 8 million pages long and it's gigantic and the first and the title of it is Trust Yourself and the next page when you open it says, you know how things should be. The rest of it is all of what was given but that I don't remember. Um, and so, yeah, when I came back, when I, you know, popped back awake on the couch um, was six hours later I was as high as I've ever been in my life. I know what acid feels like. I know what I like. This is the pure. If you wanted to compare this to an acid trip, you'd say it was the purest, cleanest, most transcendent, perfect trip ever. I mean, I sat there for probably an hour staring at the atomic life in the coffee table. <laughs> right? Going, holy sh! what the hell just happened? If I was drugged, somebody would have had to have flipped it to me right before. So, you know, because we, I'm going to say two, three o'clock in the afternoon. We went out and had dinner. Um, you know, I don't know if we had a beer or anything. I don't think so. But then we went back to my buddy's place. I, I was staying with a friend out here. And, and then it was like two hours after that. It was a good six hours after that. So that's number one. Number two. I know what drugs feel like in your system, like I said, especially acid. And besides that, here's another thing, Frankie, that I know it wasn't that state that I was in when I came back. And like I said, I was staring at the coffee table. It lasted for two weeks. It lasted all the way on our trip back home. We got back in the car, probably drove back east. It lasted all of that time. And finally, I started to come down. I mean, now fast forward a few decades and I've been studying this and what happened to me was like I said it was exactly like a near-death experience pretty much except for a few different if you, if you read up on people who have died on the operating table um, it's very similar to that the difference is they usually meet relatives they have a life review kind of there wasn't any of that it was just me and that being and this this download of information but when I read those experiences for the first time, in probably 1980 or 81. I was actually still in Morningland at that point. Okay. Um, and I read, I read about them. Because the, the term was invented by a cardiologist named Raymond Moody, who had interviewed people that had had these experiences. And so he started to catalog them. And so it's, it's become a thing. But there's an entire, entire, entire body of literature about people that have had what they call, they have a, the category they have for it outside of the spiritual world is near-death-like experience. And it happens to people who sometimes weren't even anywhere near death. 
like sometimes it's just they think they're going to be like they're about to get in a car wreck and all of a sudden they leave their body and they have mm-hmm. this whole experience and then they avoid the wreck somehow. So they never were near death, but this happens anyway. And I was like, well, yeah, that happened to me. Also called a spiritual experience. The Frankie Files. When I was going towards that being of life, when the experience first began, and when I started to realize that it was a conscious being, um, at a certain point, I recognized the same energy, the same vibe, if you will, the same essence or presence is maybe a better term as I felt with Donato that day. Only it was it was far more intense. It was like all the shields were off, <laughs> oh, the lead shields were down, and it was full on, you know, powerful radiation. Um, so in my mind, I had no doubt that that being and Donato were. If not one and the same, at least connected, you know. So, and here's an interesting thing for you, too, mm-hmm. you know, for everyone, I suppose. I went down to the to the temple that day after I after I went finally went back to sleep, um, got up, you know, still completely, like, tripping on this, this in this presence, in this state of, of connection with all things, ran down to the temple, which was a long way down, <laughs> Because I had to tell Donato what had happened. And I thought that he would tell me all the stuff I forgot about. Remember I said this download of information came and I don't remember any of it. All I know is that it was was telling me all of the secrets of life, in a sense, were in that (laughs) somehow. But I couldn't freaking remember it. That really pissed me off. So because I just assumed the two of them, that he and that being were the same, I'm just going to go down there and, you know, corner him and say, okay, tell me, because now I can remember. So I found him, and I was like, Donato, I had this amazing dream. It wasn't a dream. I mean, I'm stumbling and staggering. And I started to tell him a little bit about it, and it was so clear to me, Frankie, that he had no idea in the world what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was really kind of shocked, because Mm -hmm. I thought he would say, oh, well, tell me what, you know, what all this stuff was, but he said, well, all he said was, wow, really? That's great. Okay, well, and I said, but I can't remember. And he's like, he said, well, you know, when you need to, you will. And I was like, that's pretty generic. <laughs> Sounds like, yeah, you had a lot of a very generic experiences with him. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, but, but interestingly, in years past, Later, when I thought back on that, um, I thought in a way that that lent lent him more credibility rather than less. Because <laughs> you and I know damn well that would have been Patricia. Yeah, would have been like, oh, <laughs> let me tell you exactly. You know what I mean? What we did. Lee was enthralled, to say the least. What made you decide to move and become a disciple? Oh, well, that that decision was made the day after I had that experience. Donato and others there, they they both said, well, you know, you do have things you have to take care of back east, and you have issues that need to be resolved with your mom. And I was aware of that, for sure. My mom and I had, had a very contentious relationship for the last, you know, ever since I was a teenager. So, so I, so they were said, you know, they were like, the best thing for you to do is go back and get that, get that all straightened out and we'll let you know when the time is right. <laughs> so I didn't really want to go back and got back to Philadelphia. Um, and, and as it turned out then about three months later, my dad died. So I spent time with my mom and got her straightened around more. And, and in fact, she and I, because of that experience, by his passing, worked out a lot of our issues, you know. Sure. By the time, the, 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 the end of that year, now we're, now we're talking 19, he died in December of 74. So the year of 75 was me basically, you know, being with my mom, cleaning things up. I spent a lot of time going back and forth to my old college town, which was about 100 miles away. And at one point... Uh, I got a letter back from Mary saying, uh, you know, it looks like your coast is clear if you want to come out. I, I took that as all, oh, they have all this knowledge about what's happening with me on the inner plane. 
And then, it, yeah, it was about a year and a half later finally came back. That was in, that experience happened in October of 1974. And I moved out here. I got here actually for the Grand Prix weekend, 76. So finally, he returned to the temple in Long Beach, California. Out here, um, you know, the place had grown quite a bit. It had been a year and a half, so it wasn't as easy. I didn't really get to see him all that much. In fact, I think I probably had a couple different, couple different experiences with him. Once up at the lodge, um, and then maybe a couple little on and off things that happened, you know, in, in just in passing in the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, but but nothing like the kind of one-on-one that I had had before. I, guess the, I take that back. The one at the lodge was, it was a pretty intense, it was similar to, had an experience similar to the first one I described when I first met with them that day. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, what they called it, riding the elevator. That's a really apt description. Really? Exactly like that. Imagine going up an elevator mm-hmm. with a glass last walls and watching things go past it was very much like that he so, was a strange strange uh, man and i guess the only thing too frankie the only thing I, I would want to say for your listeners is this is important to me that the experiences that i had and the, and the, the state of mind that i was in you know after them were were in no way like like you know being being in a trance or being, mm-hmm. they were, they were not high, they were not, uh, a, 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 what am I trying to say? Not a diminished awareness. It was a heightened awareness and mm-hmm. heightened with, with clarity, you know, not just like with a, with acid, you get a heightened awareness, but you also have a lot of like static. <laughs> uh-huh. But you don't, which is a good way of describing it. It's like, Oh, I, mm-hmm. I see the channel, but it's a lot of static, but no, this is like, so, so I, I don't, I don't dismiss those things. I can understand how people who have never had that experience would. I was determined to, to go by the right after that experience. It was just I was just basically waiting for them to say when was the time. So, how long are you there before Donato passes away? The Frankie Files. Um, not even, not even a year. Let's see. He passed, mm. I think, in early November. 76. 76 so, okay. you know, six, seven months. And it must have been a shock. It was a total shock. I mean, uh, oh yeah, it was a total shock. I mean, uh, I mean, I just remember coming down to service that, that evening, the normal Sunday service, and, uh. And they, you know, they were playing All Things Must Pass by George Harrison. Some people, the Gopis and some were really emotional. And I was thinking, wow, what's going on? And then they made the announcement. And we were all pretty much, pretty much shocked. On one level, it didn't matter to me because, you know, we all kind of at that point believed that whatever it was Donato did, he didn't need to be physically present to do it. So we were all ready to just, okay, we're going to soldier on and, you know, continue with the plan and... I, I was there. The one that I remember was um, what she called the Battle of Kurukshetra. A little bit of a side, but Patricia was very erudite, meaning very well learned in lots of different world religions and stuff. So Kurukshetra is a is a is, is referenced in 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 ancient Hindu texts. So, but but that was right after Donato had passed, and, she, and that's where I thought she flipped. This woman has lost her mind. She's lost her husband, and now she's lost her mind. <laughs> she's trying very hard not to let those thoughts uh, be heard by anyone. There's theories out there that she actually poisoned Donato, and I I would not doubt that. I have no proof of that, but I do know that after he died, because um, he, he died at the lodge, they were up there for some kind of retreat. No one really knows because they were she wouldn't allow an autopsy. By the way, I don't call her Patricia anymore. I call her Patricia. I give her at least the dignity of Patricia and not just Pat. But, <laughs> but because she took that title herself. I understand. And I, you know, I don't know. Like, like you said about, I don't, I don't know. And clearly, he let a lot, at the very least, at the very least, he let a lot of things 
Donato? Um, yeah. At, at the most, he was a, a complicit in it. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I really have no way of knowing. Right. We don't. True. We don't. But at the very least, he let a lot of things go mm-hmm. that he should have. Mm-hmm. He should not have let go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of giving ourselves that title, for example. If if I had I not had the types of experiences that I did in Donato's presence, I would be 100% on that page that you are, as mm-hmm. far as their the grifters. Now, it's entirely possible that he had that ability somehow, but also was a grifter. She was a better grifter, but didn't have as much of the ability, but she talked about it. She, was, she had a real dramatic, you know, your listeners know Catherine Kuhlman. She was like, Catherine Kuhlman was an old... Back in the 70s, we used to watch her on TV and laugh. She was like an early evangelical. I believe miracle was what Patricia was like. It was spaceship theology and, you know, Eastern religion and sorcery. And I guess as someone who, who studied religion, even before Morning Man, um, and certainly since, I, I don't know how to characterize it. it it's a gigantic mishmash of... Right. Of, I mean, the energy, at least, again, now this is from when I was there. I don't I have no idea what it's like now. When I was there, the energy, the feel more like evangelical Christianity was like. He would get going preaching, and there would be thunder and brimstone. He was just a fire and brimstone preacher. All the terminology was taken from Hinduism, or most of it, that, that I knew of. Like, for example, Tatum, which is her term for... One to services or gathering on a Friday night. Remember those? That's an Eastern term. Mm-hmm. Or darshan. That, that's an Eastern term, meaning the energy of the master. Guru. That's an Eastern term. It means the bringer of light. You know, satsang. Remember satsang? That's basically a gathering of the mind. These are all from Hinduism and, and Buddhism. But then she would also talk about, you know, being on board the mothership, um, the scouts flying around. And I mean, it was just a gigantic mishmash of things. So I, I don't know if you could actually pinpoint a particular doctrine. Donato had some really interesting teaching. You may remember this, how this, how this metamorphosed. Remember, Donato's teaching was, trust yourself. If there was a little corollary to it, which is, don't believe me, don't trust me, I might lead you over a cliff. Trust yourself. Once Donato had passed, she gradually changed that teaching into... At first it was, you have to trust the master to be able to trust yourself. And then it became to be able to love the master so that you can trust the master so you can trust yourself. It's just a just a flipping over from trust yourself to trust us. Don't trust yourself. And I remember all those for me, all those for me were red flags. I saw many, many things that happened that, you know, think, well, okay, I don't know about that, but I'm not going to let one bad thing get in the way of all these good things, more and more bad things pile up, and eventually it's like, I'm out of here. Now it's Sri Donato's world, and he's going to take us into this dark, manipulative, controlling matrix, which kept many cleverly entrapped for many years. Listen. I, I started to date Mila. I started to date her when Donato was still alive, actually. And then we moved in together, and we were talking about getting married. Mm. But when the when the clearing session started, which is pretty much what started the whole the whole eventual demise of the Escondido Temple, I was removed for a month, and she was removed for six months. It, it wasn't stated explicitly that we shouldn't be together, but but no, I think it kind of was. They said mm. they said if you're in a couple and one of you gets you know, goes on sabbatical. You can't hang around with any disciple. That includes, you know, your partner, of course. But since we weren't married, I had to basically find lodging somewhere. And we did live together for, I don't know, a year or so, maybe. Maybe not quite that long, but... So, so yeah, they, they pretty much split us up. Not specifically like, you need to break up, but it was all part of the rules, and we kind of knew that. In the meantime, then, I started to date another gal um, named Celine, then Mila came off of her six-month sabbatical. She came back in. So when Mila came back, I actually started to drift away a little bit from Celine, and she and I, Mila and I, started to, to, to hook up again because we, you know, we lived together for a year. So 
this now, the time frame in here is after Patricia and Sarah Body have moved up to Long Beach. Um, and, you know, the, all of that whole Escondido Temple had disappeared. They were reconstructing things up here. And at one point, um, and Patricia was all on her best behavior. Oh, my gosh, so nice. You know, She calls me into her office, and she said, and, and for your for your audience, this is sort of how it went, at least from my experience of it. It wasn't it wasn't out and out direction, but it was like so she said, for example, she said not for example, she said to me, I understand that you've been sort of getting back together with Mila. And I said, Yeah, I have. And she said, Well, now we can't really tell you what to do. We can't really interfere with your free will. <laughs> But Celine is a much better fit for you. And I said, you know, I, I can see that. And I could. I said, she's, she's like a good friend. I said, but I don't have a real sexual thing with her. It's, it's not, we're like friends. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, don't worry about that. It'll come. Can't tell you what to do. But the implication is all, you know, they, they, spend, they spend like 99% of the time telling you that they are connected directly to God. And then they spend 1% of their time telling you, but don't, you don't have to believe what we say, <laughs> right? Something like that. The 99% goes, well, you know, maybe they, maybe I should look at this, you know, because so that's how that little manipulation went. It wouldn't hold up in court. A, they never said to do it, and B, we're all adults. Absolute manipulation. So that was in, like, fall of 1978. So Celine and I get together, then I, you know, I tell Mila, well, you know, we decided not to, to go our separate ways, and um, mm-hmm. Celine and I get back together, and, and we wound up, actually, she was right, there was a connection did develop, so she wasn't wrong about that, and I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, I guess that's cool, and then in February of 79, we got married, mm-hmm. so now, fast forward about, let's see, 79, 80, 81, 82, about three years. Um, at this point, I'm working um, full-time job. Celine, at that point, spent most of her time at the temple. Um, so I never expected to see her when I got home from work. I would usually come home, make myself some dinner or something, and then go over to the temple and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see Celine's car there. And I, I go, oh, God, what's going on? So I come in, I... And she said, let's go out to dinner. And I said, well, I can't. I've got band rehearsal today. She said, well, I've taken care of it. Talk to Sarah Body. We're all, we, we need to go out to dinner. We need to talk. And she seemed weird. I didn't know what was going on. I said, okay, you're sure? I said, I don't want to get in trouble. No, no, no. It's all, you and I need to go out to dinner. Okay. So we go out somewhere. We sit down. She proceeds to order glass after glass of wine. And she hammered them down. So after several of them, she gets loose in them. She says to me, I have to tell you that we need to get a divorce. And I said, what? And she goes, yeah. The master pretty much said we have to. And told me how it went down. To rehearse in the dome room and the band would be on. A lot of times they would sit in the back there, you know, Patricia in mm-hmm. basket chairs with their entourage around. And Selena is with them. And this is the story that Celine told me. So Patricia calls her over and and as you sit right next to her, you know, come sit right here. So, you know, Celine sits down and, and they're talking about me. And, and Patricia says, wouldn't you just love to see him just just grow and evolve and advance way beyond where he is now? And, of course, Celine's my wife and we love each other. And she says, well, of course. So Patricia says, well, he really only has one obstacle. And Celine says, what's that? And Patricia says, you. And it's like, what? She said, yes, you're the obstacle. So if you guys were to split up, it would really help the spiritual evolution. And Celine, of course, being the ever, ever obedient disciple, at least at that point, did what she had to do because she was helping out her husband and the plan and her master and, oh, my God. The Frankie Lee, tell us about being in training. What went on with the order of the tribunal, quote marks, that you were put in? When I was at the lodge, there was a brief, for a brief about a week, they made me a tribunal. So they made me a tribunal. Mm -hmm. 
for about a week. <laughs> but I was up there, I remember being at the lot, and they were doing readings. Remember how they sit in the front and they do readings? And I remember saying to Patricia, I, I said something like, I don't know enough, I don't feel confident to do a reading. You never say that you're not confident because, oh, just trust us. So I, I had to get up there and do it anyway. One thing about me, I've always looked my sense of honesty. <laughs> Because she called me out and said, okay, so here's so-and-so out there. Here's your chart. What do you see? I'm thinking to myself, I see a chart. I don't know. Some little planet. Actually, sort of my attention was drawn to it. I said, well, see whatever planet it was in this house. And I said nothing because I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> but after that, I only was good for about two weeks. And eventually they said, I just couldn't do it anymore. I was a grown. I was 25 when I moved out here, so... You know, I was I was truly an adult, and I always made a pledge with myself that, you know, if, if things get too weird, I'm gone. Tell us about the clearing sessions, Lee. What were those like? They were they were torture. <laughs> I would define them as emotional and psychological torture. So so you 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 come into a room. Um, I don't remember how they, I, I think when they were in full swing, actually checked like a bulletin board to see if you were supposed to a clearing session on one, in one of the rooms. And if you saw your name up there, it was like, oh, God. You know, either a Gopi or some of the, some of the, at that time they were called the EWS. I don't know. Patricia was basically certifiable. She was paranoid. The whole temple would basically dance to the tune of her madness. The cycles that went in and out, all the dark forces are, had to up, you know, security. Never saw any freaking dark force. Later it'd be all nice and wonderful and she'd be just loving and peach. I mean, I think she was, she had some, she was certifiable. I don't know what else to call it. So I don't know if somebody said, was dumb enough to raise their hand and say, I have a tape I want to clear. <laughs> they would say, does anyone have something to say? But but if you know, if you, if you started to talk, and some one of the EWS got the sense that you were either lying or you were dissembling in some way, or you weren't being honest or whatever, boy, you just started to get grilled, you know. And you were grilled about it was just nuts. It would be like, I know you've been running tapes on so and so, and then of course, your job as the purported tape runner find out was to look within, see exactly how that was true. It was not your job to say, no, I'm not, even if you weren't. I just tried to keep my head down as much as I could. I remember the one day I got kicked out for a, a month, and I don't remember exactly what prompted it. I raised my hand and said something, um, and I was feeling, I, I think I was trying to say something more or less positive, but one of the EWS, whom I've reconnected with after that, he was a good friend, um, Terry Connolly, you may not even remember him. His name was Zanos at the time, but he stood up and just started shouting at me, get out, get out. Yeah, and I was gone for a month. I mean, I had to, you know, finally they got a hold of me and got a month sabbatical. I never did know for what. The only thing that I couldn't do is I couldn't say namaste, <laughs> and I had to come down, I forget what. But other than that, it was just a month. Meanwhile, while I was out, Mila, as I mentioned before, got kicked out for six months. So we basically had to leave, you know, give up our apartment before I actually went out on sabbatical, before we were actually split up, Neil and I. We were, we were, we had gone back to our apartment. We were in the middle of all this awful craziness going on, the clearing sessions at the temple. It was just horrible. And, it was. And I, I just said, let's just go for a drive. Yeah. And so we got in the car and we started to drive. And I remember this distinctly that we got we went probably went down to Bellflower Boulevard. We got a certain distance away from the temple, and I remember this so clearly. It was just as if how can I even put this? Just as if a whole weight was removed, mm. like suddenly, and we both felt it. I looked mm. at Neil and I said, "Wow, man, I just feel better. I'm glad we got out." Mm. She said, "So do I." So we drove around a little bit, and then we headed back and. Almost at the same spot, we drove heading back to our apartment, and all this weight of fear came back on like a like a like a bad coat. I don't know why I didn't put it together at the time. That you know, this is just bad energy. There's no reason that we should be subjecting ourselves to this. I think she was she was a black black magician. Okay, Lee, what finally made you leave? 
Like most of us, there's always a final straw. Finally, the, the biggest the biggest blow, I guess, was when she split up Selene and I. So then I went to move. I got a new, another apartment in Long Beach. I was still working. Um, but, no, 1982, in the fall, because I remember where I was working, and I remember being at this new apartment. And then in February of 83, I remember I'd been to a class, and there, I don't know what they were talking about, but it was just, it was the usual bullshit about, you know, if you if you deny the master, you will gradually de-evolve over the millennia and over the eons until you will eventually de-evolve and become nothing but a quark. And here's the, here's the kick, a quark, a quark, a conscious quark, conscious only of your separation from God. I remember that as clearly as I'm standing right here. And I think it was the following day I was at work, and I, I can still see myself. I'm standing at the at the film machine. I worked for a big graphic decal company, waiting for this film to come out. And I was thinking about that, and it just hit me. The, the thought hit me as clearly as I have ever thought of anything, that no loving God would create such a plan as this. This is insane. I could create a more sane plan. And I knew right then, that's it, I'm gone. I went right down to the temple and I said, I kind of wanted to do it right. I don't know why, for my own sense of dignity, I suppose. I went, I, I went in and I said, I would like to set up an appointment with with Patricia. I think I said with the master um, to be released from my vows of discipleship. So a couple of days later, I went down and went through a whole ceremony, which, you know, was kind of bullshit ceremony, but, but she didn't even show up for that. Kriya and Kyrie and forget who else. But, but she, saw, she had me sign this paper. That's how that happened. It just, it was like, that was that strong. The scales finally just went boom. <laughs> this is absolutely fucking nuts. I just, I just thought, you know what, I'm willing, part of it was I'm willing to take my chances. <laughs> I, we know, got out, Lee. Pretty much, pretty much intact. I mean, and, and again, you know, I'm 72 years old, so that was 40 years ago that that happened. So I've learned an awful lot. And in a way, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I can smell a cult. In our conversation, I asked Lee how he would recognize a cult now after all that he's seen and researched post-cult. This is how Lee can spot a cult, and he encouraged you to do the same. First and most importantly, the cult mentality is not limited to religious or spiritual groups. It seems that because of our natural human orientation, he says, towards social groups, it is something to which all human beings are susceptible. Mm -hmm. Most of us have an innate desire to be accepted within a group and to please the leader and other members of that group, at least to some reasonable extent. But when this basic human need is manipulated to coerce group cohesion with pressure applied to force members beyond the bounds of their free will and basic morality, then you have the essence of cult mentality. Lee goes on to say, in my experience, the most telling thing to watch out for is an emphasis on loyalty to the leader. Any particular individual or to the group itself, beyond your loyalty to your own integrity, free will, and ethical nature. We all have an innate desire to protect and defend those whom we cherish as our closest associates. Family ties, deep friendships, and group affiliations are a normal and healthy part of being human. But a cult leader will attempt to redirect those natural bonding impulses so that they become the most important focus of them. This will not happen suddenly or else all your warning lights would be flashing. He goes on, typically you will be showered with praise and what appears to be unconditional love and acceptance. But gradually, the leader becomes the center of attention, of devotion, of obedience, and of loyalty. If they are successful in this, you will do anything to protect them and support them. And even if it goes against your own integrity, your own morals, and even your own well-being, truer words were never spoken. Interestingly, I learned my craft in Moneyland, so, so I give them a little credit. 
they let me work in publications and I learned how to do typesetting and layout. <laughs> so eventually, so I kind of started working with a magazine and then, you know, one thing led to another and, uh, you know, I've, I've made a pretty good living. I mean, we're not wealthy by any means, but, but I managed to buy a place and now our, our house is paid for and I'm retired now, but I do freelance work still, so I'm still, still learning some money. But the most fun really is music and I've, I've played music from before before Morningland, ever since I was a kid. So we, I still play with a band and, you know, we play Southern Rock. We're kind of an old old school classic Southern Rock group. So it's, I love doing that. that. That's still my favorite. My heartfelt thanks goes out to Leon, a professional independent graphic designer and musician. He plays Southern Rock in his band in Southern California, where he lives. Still, his original music is also available. Thank you to everyone listening, liking, and following the podcast. Thank you for reviewing and rating our show wherever you get your podcast so that we can stay around. And always, keep critical thinking. You're listening to Lee O. Original composition on Spotify called Appalachia. Listening to the Frankie Files. FrankieFilesPodcast.com.